We're going to move into these last and final phases, if you will, of our study in the book of Philippians. And today we're continuing the truth we began talking about last week. This is a, a truth under the alpha heading of what it means to dwell on what God wants us to dwell on. What is good, what is noble, what is praiseworthy, what is right. That's what Paul tells us in Philippians and his, his closing remarks. And he tells us that when we dwell on the things that matter most to him, there is an, a, a great chance, an increased chance, a promise we could even say, that we will tap into his peace, his joy, and his hope, which is highly thematic during this time of year. I want to open by sharing, you, uh, sharing with you a story. It connects to last week, and if you give me a few moments, I promise I'll bridge the gap. Years ago, I had a really interesting conversation with a friend who had recently come to Jesus and was struggling with an issue very early on in my pastorate. And he, th this might not seem like a big deal, but it really was to him. And in, in many ways, I would say it is a big deal. So I don't want to undermine his challenge. But depending on where you're coming from, you might place this in a different spectrum of, of life challenges. But I, I need you to know that this was a very serious one for this young man. And it was that he had become a Christian sort of late in life, later in life. And he had carried with him this desire, he'd been listening to some incredibly vulgar music. Now, by vulgar, I don't mean the moralistic sense, but by vulgar, I mean words that were undermining him as a person and even some of the people in the world that he lived in. So it was a, it was a musical rhythm that really became a problem to him. And he began to wonder, as he grew in Jesus, whether or not this was good for his soul. You know, what we sort of ingest as Christians, in all ways, really does feed the diet of our soul. And so because he was confused about the matter, he did what a, what a growing Christian should do. It's something that we preach regularly here. He turned to people that he had known, people he had in his church family, and he began to ask them for counsel. He was essentially processing a gospel, a truth rhythm in his life, and began to flesh that out in community. You cannot process truth properly without the people of God. The word of God, the people of God, and the mission of God. And so he, he spoke to his friends, and what they told him to do was sort of interesting. They organized uh, sort of a ceremonial event, if you will. They met at a community dumpster, and he told me that in a very ceremonial fa fashion, his friends had encouraged him to throw all of his CDs out, and there were a lot of them, hundreds of them. And so he did just that. He threw them away. In other words, there was a recommended solution to deal with this issue. And from the outside looking in, the immediate response was to physically remove the problem from this guy's life. In other words, I'm dealing with this music. It's really disturbing my soul. His friends come in and say, well, let's remove what's disturbing your soul. Now, I want to be pretty clear here. Um, the counsel to, given to this guy might seem to some of us maybe a little bit extreme. Like maybe it was, uh, maybe even fundamental is the old word we used to use, right? But I want you to know that this type of action wasn't entirely bad. Uh, sometimes, at least in my opinion, sometimes becoming something new, experiencing a change in life does require us to make immediate changes like that. Sometimes removal is important, okay? But that said, in this case, the counsel was without question incomplete. And here's why. While the guy no longer had these vulgar CDs, couldn't listen to them, what he told me was interesting. He said, I still want to listen to that music. In other words, the, the music's not in my car anymore, but I still have a desire to embrace it, to listen to it. And this is sort of the crux of where I'm going this morning. It created a real joy problem for him because it created an uneasy tension in his heart. He was living in conflict. And this is a perfect example of what we spoke about last week. Attempting to change your image in Jesus from the outside in which Jesus says really doesn't deeply change anything. It might have an effect on life, but true, like, core-out change doesn't happen this way. This can aid the process, but it cannot be the entire process. And this dwelling truth is what we're going to continue to talk about today. 
Last week, and some of you in your community groups this week discussed this in question time, you talked about what it meant to be fashioned in the image of Jesus and what it meant to be fashioned in the image of Jesus, to listen to one voice, to, to have your life reflect one image in a world that is constantly vying for our attention. The world wants us to be many images, but the one that matters most for those who are pursuing the truth of Jesus is that we are being remade into the image of Jesus. This dwelling truth is what we're going to continue to talk about today in these final weeks of our Philippians Finding Joy series. And today I want to add another layer to this image truth by talking about the power that empowers us to become like Jesus and truly does enable us to live with lasting joy. Remember, joy is a deep-seated posture of the soul. It is an emotion too, right? But I am telling you, when it comes to any change we want in life, especially these very deep spiritual and emotive ones, to change from the outside in is not the way we experience permanent or lasting change. Joy is the same way. When there is a lack of joy in our life, that is very deep-rooted in our lives. But nonetheless, it creates an external attitude, an external feeling. And our goal is not just to manage the feeling. Our goal is to get to the root of why we are without joy. So let's jump right in and look at the first truth I'd like to share with you today. It's deeply connected to what we talked about last week. And simply put, last week we said, the greatest joy you can have in life is being remade into the image of Jesus on a daily basis. Connected to that is what I want to share with you this morning. If you want to become the joyful person God wants you to be, you must really believe he can renew you. This is where we start this morning. You must really believe that God wants to make you a new creature, that God wants to refashion you into the image of Jesus. And it is through that process that we experience an unassailable joy, a joy that overcomes circumstantial challenge, no matter what it is. Now, as is true with most of what we talk about each week, there is a protagonist and an antagonist. There is a truth that God wants us to know. And true to form, no pun intended, each week we have been talking about some of the lies that rob us from experiencing that truth. And I want to share with you right away the antagonist, the challenge to this statement that I've just made. In our world, it's often said that people can't change. This is the challenge. God says, I can change you. But in our world, we live in a pessimistic place at times where people believe that nobody can change. However, if we go to gospel truth, the scripture regularly shows us that this isn't true. People can change, not necessarily everybody. There is a, a, a responsibility we have to the process. But nonetheless, I want you to know change is possible. If you are without joy, receiving joy and experiencing joy is possible. Now think about this. How many times have you heard the phrase uttered about this, about somebody in your life? The conversation usually goes something like this. A couple of people are talking about a person who has an identifiable problem. In this case, we've been talking about joy. Maybe they're really depressed or maybe they have selfish rhythms in their life arrogant rhythms, maybe they're mean-spirited. All of these things can rob us of our joy. We're, we're living in or pressing into an image that is not of God. Or maybe uh, for some people, this is very true. I've shared a story about my life here years ago. Uh, there were people in my life before becoming a Christian who believed I would never become a Christian. They just looked at me and said, that's not possible in that guy's life. And it was absolutely possible, not in my life, but in God's life. Whatever it is, right? People see an obvious issue in a person's life and because of it, they automatically write the person off. It's sort of like truth without community. That's the problem in our, our worldview. And they say things like, you know, I've known that person a long time, and I seriously doubt they're ever going to change. And I need you to hear me here. You are all wise, and I'm sure you know this, but I want to reiterate it just in case. At times, this can really be true. There are some people who, for various reasons, will not change. Maybe they don't desire it. Maybe they are so entrenched in whatever it is they're dealing with that it is their preferred form of living. That is a very real reality. 
At times this can be true because some people looking to become a new person in an area of their life often attempt that change. They either don't want to attempt it, they don't want to experience change, or they try to do it entirely in their own power. And this is a statement I've made in this room many times before. They practice in the Christian worldview what I like to call a bootstrap theology. Pick yourself up, pick your soul up, pick your spirits up, pick your emotions up, pick your life up by your own bootstraps, your own spiritual bootstraps. Now, the laws of physics say that's not impossible in the physical world. You cannot do that. If you try, you will likely break your neck and be in an ambulance after church. In the spiritual world, the reality is, is the same. It is spiritually impossible to lift yourself up out of anything you're dealing with. I'm not saying we don't have a responsibility in the matter, but I'm saying ultimately the lifting agent in our world is the goodness and the grace of God. That is the foundational lifting rhythm in our life. And if you have ever used this bootstrap theology to deal with your own joylessness, you have likely experienced this frustrating reality. You might get off the ground for a little bit, for a season, but if the root of that is left unattended, what happens is you will never have lasting or permanent joy. And by lasting and permanent, I don't mean that it's in your life every minute of the day, but I mean when you look at the rhythm of your life, you see perseverance and hope. You see down points and valleys, but the bottom line is you see a rhythm of hope and life because that is what Jesus promised us. Let me give you an example of this. This week, I, uh, you know, our worship team has been doing a lot of discussion about really powerful things, where we're going for the future and just some of the rhythms we want to begin embracing in our church, how we want to lead you all in congregational worship. And because of that, over these past weeks, I've been sort of refreshing my, my mind on the theology of worship. And I was rereading a book I read years ago, and I've referenced this person before. It's a gentleman named Bob Coughlin, who's had a pretty significant impact on our worship ministry. And in his writings, he shared about a time where, uh, early on in his ministry, where he really went through a particularly rough three-year season in his life, which he self-defines as hopeless. And he went on to say that throughout the years, uh, he said that his life was increasingly characterized by anxiety, by depression, and that actually led to panic attacks. Now, we would say, here's a person who is deeply in love with Jesus, but is sort of joyless at this point in his life, right? It can happen to the best of us. Despite his efforts, he couldn't do anything to get himself out of that funk. He essentially pressed into the rhythm I'm just, I just spoke about. He was trying everything in his power to get this off of his chest, and he couldn't. So eventually, he did what a smart Christian does, a wise Christian does. He reached out to a close friend, another pastor friend. He invited the people of God into his faith. And he confessed this hopelessness to his buddy. And he was shocked by this guy's response because he said his friend pretty clearly and articulately said, listen, the challenge you're dealing with right now is a very obvious one. He said, you're coming to me saying you're hopeless right now, but I'm telling you the issue is you're actually not hopeless enough. And at first, Bob Coughlin says, you know, I thought he was kind of joking. But the more they spoke about it, the more he realized he was not joking. He was dead set straight about what he meant. And he went on to say, if you were completely hopeless, you'd stop trusting in your own strength. You would sort of realize the, the fragility of your life plan right now, that you are still trying to wrestle yourself out of, a, out of a spiritual and physical funk right now that you cannot. You need help in the process. If you want to become a different person, in his case, restore joy, then you have to stop trusting in what you think you can do in your life, and you have to start trusting in what Jesus has already done in your life on the cross. And here is where a... a if you've been in the church for a while, especially our church, you've heard this before, the centrality of the grace of Jesus on the cross. We can hear this thing at times, this truth. We can hear that gospel reality, but whether or not it marries into our lives and into the lives of those we minister to and are ministered to by, that's a different story. You have to begin believing deeply in what Jesus can do for you. 
you have to believe he can renew you. And he went on to say that at that moment, a light went on in his head and in his heart. And I don't know about you, but I find this is sort of the way that God often speaks to me. It's not even that he necessarily says new things to me. And that's a problem, even in the teaching, preaching world. When I was in seminary, we were trained like to always say something new. And I actually don't even agree with that philosophy anymore. Because if you look at the scripture, it's essentially a book of repetitive ideas and truths. It's sort of like God isn't concerned with new stuff. He's concerned with us really getting the real stuff. And this is what happened to him. Uh, it wasn't a new truth. This guy was leading worship. He'd never, it's not that he hadn't heard the, the centrality of Jesus' cross in our life. You have heard that. But it was a truth that God made new to him in that moment. He said a light went on in his head and his heart. And for months after that conversation, he said, every time I would feel anxious or hopeless, I would say to myself, right now I am a hopeless person. I'm actually okay with that. But I know that Jesus actually died for the hopeless. He died so that I wouldn't have to remain this way. And over time, key point, from the inside out, what he realized was the power to be renewed in life was found in trading the lies of a sin, trading, the lies of a, uh, trading lies that we believe about ourselves for the truth of Jesus. He has hope. He just hadn't experienced that yet. And slowly, and I emphasize slowly here, but surely he regained hope in his life. This is the, the end of his story. He pressed into the promises of Christ's hope, not his own. And that joy story stands in sharp contrast to the one about the guy with the CDs. I open with that and connect it here for a reason. It highlights something very important. In Jesus, it's possible for anyone to become renewed in any area of life. That is possible. But for it to really stick, it must come from the inside out. It can't just be an external adjustment. It's also got to be a deep-seated change. One that God sort of masseuses the, the clay of your heart to bring about. Now this is not a new development. I'm not making up something new. If you read the scripture, especially the teachings of, new, uh, of Jesus in the New Testament, what you're going to find is there is a great amount of redundancy behind this truth, and for good reason. It is a teaching straight from the mouth of Jesus. I'm going to read a verse to you here in a moment in Matthew 15, where Jesus teaches us that the root of all of our external issues, the root of everything we struggle with in life, joylessness included, always lies with an internal heart issue. There's, there's always a, the motor of our life, the control center of life is what's fueling that stuff. It's whenever we choose to believe a lie about ourselves or God at the expense of a truth about ourselves and God. Like, for example, believing you have a hopeless life or a joyless life, or fill in the blank, or whatever the feeling is. And Jesus, he's, he's a contrarian to that. He says, listen, um, you might have a hopeless life right now, but, but I am all hope. I've made you that promise, and I am all joy. And if you will look to me, over time, I promise, I can restore this to you. This is not a new issue. The circumstances are different all the time, but the root of the issue is not. And listen to how Jesus explains this truth in Matthew 15, verses 16 through 20. So when speaking to the Pharisees, it'll be behind me, he said this. He says, are you still so dull? They haven't gotten this yet. He sort of gently insults them and says, how come you don't get this anymore? How come you don't see this? You are teachers of the law. You, know, you are the arbiters of the truth of God in the first century world, but you don't understand this, this basic foundation of what it means to follow my father. He says, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these are what defile them. And then he lists a sort of laundry list of, of, of actions that reflect a, a, a heart that's really not walking with God. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Now let me explain what he's saying here. Here Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because they were spreading a common and destructive teaching about renewal. There were people trying to experience change, much like us in the first century world. And these men 
were actually giving them a faulty theology. They were trying to put the cart before the horse when it came to the way God worked in their lives. The Pharisees here are rebuking Jesus' disciples for breaking a ceremonial law of God. What's happened is, is they have touched food without washing their hands. Remember, this is a pretty dusty world. So they come and they attempt to eat and they have not cleansed their hands. And these Pharisees have deemed them religiously unclean. What they've said is, listen, genuinely, genuinely, we believe that the dirt on your hands is what the root issue of your life is at this moment. Everything going wrong with you right now is because you have dust under your fingernails. Now, because of their faulty theology, their solution to deal with the issue was sort of like the CDs. They said, you know what you got to do to make this right? What do they have to do to make this right? they got to wash their hands. Seems pretty simple, right? Hey, you got a dirty hand, clean it up, it's all good. This is an old world example of throwing CDs out. It's sort of an incomplete counsel. But Jesus says very directly, the real issue here, guys, isn't dirty hands. It was a bit of a dirty heart. That's the problem. He says what's coming out of us is it, it runs much, much deeper than just an action. It's always the heart behind the action. And that is why the Pharisees, uh, they never really grasped this. They were still more concerned about clean fingernails, where the disciples were pursuing Jesus in a different way. They were learning to realign the truth of their lives, to realign their hearts around the goodness of God. Very different faith-based systems. So the whole point of what Jesus taught in this passage is that when it comes to any change, it must come from the inside out. The out changes, but it, it changes because of the inside. And only he has the power to change us like that. Only he has the power to rewire the control center of life like this. And you have to trust him by believing this. And remember, belief in this world, and I'm going to share this with you when we launch our new series the week after Thanksgiving called We Believe. We're going to have a couple of messages on what it means to believe because that's a pretty powerful statement. Belief is not a leap of ignorance in the Christian faith. It is often just taking a step beyond what we can see. If you begin to see how God has worked in the lives of people, and if we're being honest, if we look at our faith stories, the experiential reality of the way God has worked in our lives, we should believe more deeply at times. We should say, God has a good track record of keeping his word with me. So I'm going to try to believe this, and I'm going to ask for the faith to do it. You have to trust him by believing, or at least challenge your doubt in an attempt to believe this. Otherwise, you'll adopt a lie of hopelessness when it comes to joy. You'll believe something different. You're going to believe something. So am I. Why believe the lie over the truth? Why believe that there can be no joy in life? Or I am joyless in this season of life? Or why believe that I am not put on this earth to bring joy to others? Why believe that lie? When we can believe the truth that God says, I am joy, and I've redeemed you to be joyful, and I now want you to labor on the behalf of a world, oftentimes that is without joy. This is what it means to be changed from the inside out. This is what it means to have joy from the inside out. And this leads me to the second truth I want to share with you today. You have to believe, or at least be honest with God, to the point that you don't believe that he can be joy in your life. But if you get to the point where you, <coughs> where you do believe this, the real hope and power to be joyful in all of our life's matters is knowing that God is the source of your joy. This is where the rubber meets the road this morning. It's really knowing that when you want joy, you have to believe that God is your joy. This is why I introduced 1 Thessalonians 5.23 today. The dwelling truth that we read about in Philippians, the focal point today is 1 Thessalonians. Let me read it to you and then I'll talk about it for a few minutes. Paul says, May God himself, the God of peace, promise in Philippians, once again, reiteration, the, the redundancy, the God of peace, may he sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, the process that Paul is talking about here, which leads us to joy, is something we call sanctification in the Christian faith. Now, I want to explain these two concepts here quickly because they're important. We talk about justification a lot in the Christian faith, and that simply means when we spoke about the power of the cross a few minutes ago, that's justification. What it means is Jesus alone declared us righteous in God's eyes because of his death on the cross. Now, this is a great example. I'm going to be very brief here, but I promise we will unpack this in very robust ways in the months that come in our new series. But I want you to understand why what we believe really matters. Here's a primer. We, couldn't just say, we could just say, like, the cross matters because Jesus justified us. Absolutely true statement. But when we talk about how we live our lives amongst other believers and in the world, this has a direct impact on how we understand life and live in the world. Jesus declares us righteous in God's eyes on the cross. And the result of this is that we are now at peace with God, or can be if we trust in his, his death. And we no longer have to live in the pressure cooker of thinking we have to earn love anymore from God or forgiveness or approval. What we believe matters. It should matter anyways. It should deeply shape the way we walk out of this room and live our lives amongst other men and women of God in the world we live in. That is justification. You are free to be at peace with God. Holy moly, what a statement, right? You are free to be at peace with God. Nobody? Nothing? <laughs> right? You're like, coffee, 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 amen, more coffee, right? Justification, God makes you right. Sanctification, however, is the evidence of God's continuing presence in our life. That's what Paul's hitting out here in Thessalonians. He's saying, look, God's going to do something in your life now that you're in him. There's a presence he's going to promise you. There's a, a process that he gives you. His whole spirit, everything is going to be with you. It's the evidence that you have been justified in Jesus. And it is the lifelong process of becoming less of yourself and more like Jesus. It is the lifelong process of becoming remade in the image of Jesus. That is the root of all joy. In this verse, we understand the root of all joy. This is what we spoke about last week. It's a process that creates a life that is marked by an ever-increasing growth in grace, in truth, in holiness, and our love to pursue God. It creates a life marked by good works that honor God and bless our neighbor. It is a life marked by true change and joyful renewal as you are remade into the image of Jesus. And my hope is that if you've come into this place today doubting the first truth we spoke about this morning, that you can be renewed, maybe this is a, a different way to look at it. That you can be joyful in all of life's matters. The second truth, it's a bit of a catalytic truth because it, uh, it causes you to apply, if you really think about it, it's going to challenge you to apply the scalpel of skepticism that you apply to joy in your life to change to, or to the fact that you believe God can't change you. In other words, when we talk about what we believe, I think sometimes if we say, I just can't be joyful, or I can't overcome these emotions, my question to you and also to myself is, why don't we apply that to the other side of the spectrum? Why don't we say, um, well, God, why is it that I can't feel this right now? Why is it that I can't experience this right now? Maybe rather than dissecting the hopelessness, we ought to dissect the promise. We might have a different outcome at the end of that process. And here's why you can believe any change is possible in life. The particular focal point of where we're at is joy because God promised it to you that is why it's not a bootstrap rhythm it's a God promised rhythm it is a benefit to those who follow God it is a benefit to those who want to experience it the reason you can believe this is possible is because the true power to change it doesn't really have anything to do with what we think this is where God's promises often trump our emotions and that's a good thing on some days everything that we do Anything that we believe, there is a promise often connected to it. Everything to do with what God has promised us here matters. And remember, when God says, I promise that you can be joyful, 
which is sort of the emphasis of this season we're moving into, you have to know God doesn't break promises. He can't. It's part of his character. And the bottom line then is this, that we can change. The question then becomes, why is it that we're not? Why is it that the desires of our hearts, when it comes to our emotions or our physical or spiritual psyche being in line with God's, why is that out of sorts? Well, I would say the question is, you you have to ask a how question. Why are we not resting in the grace of God? Why are we not working out of the power of God to do it? How does that happen? Well, this is where we'll begin to draw to a close. Here's the, the closing comments I want to leave you. I have a few minutes left that I want to speak. But nonetheless, here is where the action points are. If you want to live in God's grace and experience the power of renewal, genuine renewal, in whatever area of life that is, it does require that we do some things, two in particular, on a regular basis. If you want to change, you must repent of your righteousness. This is the first thing I want to say. And this comes directly from Matthew 15. This is the critical issue Jesus is addressing in the the life of the Pharisee. It's like a great example of one trusting in their own righteousness to change, and the other, these men following him, really trying to figure out what it means to trust in Jesus' righteousness. Two different faith stories. Now, I recognize on the surface level that this statement almost seems counterproductive. And anytime we talk about repenting from righteousness, I need to explain it. Because in the Christian faith, we're all trying to become more like Jesus. I've, I've challenged us to do this week after week by embracing a deeper level of righteousness. The key to this first step is found in the, in, in the pronoun of, of whose righteousness we're describing. And here, we're talking about repenting of our own or your righteousness, my righteousness. While every Christian is called to live in and strive to fully embody the righteousness of God, there is a very thin line that separates righteousness and self-righteousness. It created this monster dialogue in Matthew 15. When it comes to reclaiming joy in our lives, our motives, they deeply matter. That's the point of Matthew 15. That was the point of the carrot horse story I told you last week. Why is it that we approach Jesus for joy? Are we looking for a more comfortable life? Uh, Are we looking to sort of trade our duties for God to say, I did this for you, God, give me joy? The motive we approach Jesus with when we ask for joy is going to dictate the level that we actually experience it. If you go to God and say, God, I'm in your presence. Help me to know this is joy. I promise you, you're going to have a different understanding of joy, which will likely define all of the other circumstantial joys you're trying to experience in life. We have to decide whether or not we want to be renewed in God's power, which Paul refers to in Thessalonians. Notice he's the working agent in that. Or in our own strength. The first path is a journey where the God of all peace joyfully, fully, according to Paul, sanctifies you through and through, down to like the cellular level. When you invite God into your life like that, it's like mitosis on a daily basis. He's splitting cells up and moving this around and speaking to you, and he's reshaping your life. He gets into everything which can be painful at times. However, when it's just our righteousness or bootstrap living, where in the name of God we attempt to remove challenges from our life by ourselves, when we attempt to do it on our own, we often will miss issues and we might even frustrate ourselves when we can't bring about the kind of wholesale immediate change we want to experience like tomorrow. Two very different paths that will lead you to become two very different people. Simply put, one seeks to honor God, the other seeks to honor self. And that makes a lot of sense. If you're trusting in God's righteousness, in God's image, you're likely going to trust God more deeply and become more like him. But when we trust in our own righteousness or our own self, we essentially become like the God we worship. Me, you, us, right? Two different pronouns, radically different life paths. One seeks to honor God, the other honors self. And so missing this truth means you embrace motives 
that are rooted in things not deeply connected to God. The isms, I say them all the time. Legalism, moralism, all the isms. Spiritualism, that's the big one today. Furthermore, if you don't trust in the righteousness of Jesus because he justified you, eventually you become your own savior. And this is sort of where the, this is the tail end reality of this. And it never ends well because according to scripture, there is only one savior. And it is, his name is Jesus. And so refusing to repent of our own righteousness brings us back to the Matthew 15 problem. We might adopt the ways of Jesus, like the Pharisees truly are, they're living by the law, that's for sure, the law of God, but it is totally disconnected from the heart of Jesus. That's why Jesus is correcting it. And what ends up there is, in whatever issue we're dealing with, you end up with clean hands and a dirty heart. You end up with an external action. I'm going to smile today, but I don't really have joy in my heart. And we've already talked about where that ends, according to Jesus. So you have to repent of righteousness. Have to. And secondly, this is perhaps where, that, that is what I would say is the proactive rhythm this morning. You have to constantly bring that before God. It is your duty, your responsibility in this process. But there's a second thing I want to sh- share with you. And this is sort of where we have to learn to rest. We repent truly, but we learn to rest in the, in the process of repentance. After you repent of your righteousness, you must learn to trust and rest in the truth that God desires to work in your life. In other words, when you bring yourself to God, you have to know more than your desires. When you say, God, I want to be like you, More than you want to be like God, God wants you to be like him. He wants to make you into the image of Jesus more than you and I will ever likely want to be made into the image of Jesus. And when those two things align, God has got like mega fertile soil to make you like him. It is what I like to call the grounds for movement. It is what we pray for our church, that we'll get to the space where we so pack the soil with nutrient-rich belief and practice that God says, I'm going to work in that or continue to work in that in more profound and meaningful ways. And he gets elbow deep into our world and starts doing things out of our control in pretty powerful and meaningful ways. The whole book of Acts. Now, you might be saying like, how can that great stuff happen if I'm resting? Let me explain how. This resting command makes perfect sense because if we really believe the powerful renewal in life stems from the grace of God, that our quest for joy can't begin with the work of our own hands. It must begin with the work of our Father's hands. It has to start there. Being fashioned into the image of Jesus always begins by turning away from our own strength into God's. And there is great power in this because when you deeply desire renewal and joy or whatever area of life it is and learn to rest in the work of God in any area of your life, it's, it's like a three-for-one bonus buy. You think about this. According to what we're going to say, you get the full power of His Son, you get the full power of his Holy Spirit, and obviously you get the full power of God. Each plays a unique but critical role in renewing you. This is what Paul says in Thessalonians. like the full force of God in heaven starts to work on your behalf. And I want to briefly point out how. Please do not mistake my brevity for a lack of importance. Let's begin by talking about how we can rest in the truth that God is always working in our lives to sanctify us. God is always working in our lives to sanctify us. He is working through and through in our lives. That's what Paul tells us in Thessalonians. So in the days when you don't have hope to work in your own life, or in the days when you hear somebody say, I got no hope in my life, you can let them know there is hope. Because in that moment, God is still working in your life. Throughout this series, I've regularly said as God's children, we have been invited to be in a loving, stable, protective presence of God. The big hope in experiencing this is knowing God is always with you in every matter of life. And that is a truth that we should be able to derive joy from. If we cannot, it is likely that our spiritual receptors are numb. Consequently, if you will let him, if you will open your eyes to see him work in these ways, God will always use everything in our lives 
no matter how challenging they appear to us, to renew us, to increase our joy stamina. And this right here is why you can always have joy in your heart. No matter where you find yourself in life, God has the power and the promises. He promises you that he will use everything you are and everything you're going through to make you a better person, to make you a stronger believer. In the fires of life, he promises he'll make you into a more perfect image of Jesus. And so think about this. Last week I mentioned our lists. Our lists are sort of the things we notate that when we say like, you know, I really wish I'm here in life and I want to be here in life. The list is all the stuff in the middle that's keeping us from getting there. God regularly takes our lists, the things we mentioned last week that we want to change about ourselves, and he redeems them for his glory and our good. If we lean into him while we struggle with them, we tend to develop a greater love and confidence in our God for our life. We learn to trust that God can bring victory to situations in our lives that seem like defeat. And after he does restore your joy in an area, he'll likely use the way that he's worked in your life to restore joy in others as he sets you apart in more particular ways to minister to particular people with the same struggles. Remember, I, I'm going to beat this drum until the day I die. The evidence that you really know gospel truth, the evidence that you really know joy is when it bleeds into your community, your love for God's people and those without it. You can't just say, God's made me joyful, period. I'm checking out. That is wrong. It really is wrong. Your joy is meant to be an evidence for the people in your life in the family of God that are without it and for the world who hasn't experienced or tasted of this kind of joy yet. It must bleed into your love for people in all forms of life. And when this happens, your present joylessness, your struggle, becomes a hope because your suffering becomes the gateway to another salvation. There is nothing God can't redeem in your life for his glory and your good. And when we endure this stuff, what happens is God makes us confident. He makes us more secure in him. We learn to trust in the provision of God. In short, these challenges often help us change by overcoming our spiritual and emotional deficiencies. We learn to trust that God is working in the spaces of our life where we feel like there might not be work going on. We trust in his promise. And if we're being honest, we should be able to step away from these situations and say, God is working in my life. So you get the full power of God. But you also get, you can rest in, the truth that God's son Jesus is always working in our lives to sanctify us. So not only does God give you himself, he gives you his son. And contrary to popular belief, when we speak of the work of Jesus, his justification, we tend to automatically think of Easter. That's sort of like the Mac Daddy of his work, right? Now, you don't get to Easter without Christmas, which is where we're going. But my point here is that these, these ideas of Easter, and I say this every Easter, are meant to be celebrated in every single day of our lives. They're meant to be experienced in every waking moment of our lives. The cross shows us something very powerful. Jesus overcomes everything. That's the bottom line of it. He overcomes sin. He overcomes the temptations of the world. He overcomes the tomb. He is raised in all ways a conqueror over all things. He puts to death everything that derails us. And he gives us an ability to have a new life. An ultimate authority he's given by God to grant us a new life. It is a life marked by new desires. It is a life marked by the perpetual change, changing from one image to another. And what I want to say about the, the work of the cross, the justification of God in our lives, is that every day it gives you the, the ability to die to something and be raised in a newness of life. And this is why I deeply believe renewal Everlasting joy, overcoming joy, is in our spiritual DNA. Why? Because Jesus put it there. So take hope in that. And I want you to think about this. This is an irony point. Some of us will sing this. We will read about this. We will pen this in our journals at home. We will say, 
And we will affirm this together when we do the We Believe series. We will believe that Jesus lived for us and died for us. He raised himself from the dead and saved us from the, from the sins of the world. He saved us from ourselves. We will believe that. And then we will wake up and not believe that he can deal with the struggles of our life. Right? This is what's happening right there. God is, but not enough. This is essentially what we say. That is a spiritual schizophrenia. It is a lie. God is enough. He's given you himself. He's given you his son. Jesus is working for you. And lastly, I promise this is where we will end. He tells you that you can rest in the truth that God's Holy Spirit is always working in our lives to sanctify us. You don't just get God. You don't just get God's son. You also get the power of his Holy Spirit. As if like the two weren't enough. Our Father in his infinite grace also gives us his spirit to bring about renewal in our lives. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And when it comes to life change, you have to know the way you experience the presence of God today is through the presence of his Holy Spirit. He is with you now because of his spirit. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he left us his spirit. You are never alone on your journey with Jesus because according to Jesus, when you are in him, God indwells you. Now, over the years, I'm not, this is not a sermon on the theology of the spirit. We'll get to that in a couple of months. But over the years, I've taught several messages on the Holy Spirit. And there are plenty of places you can dig more deeply in this area because it's beneficial. But for today, I just want to leave you with a, a very important idea, a truth. I want to quickly show you how important the role of the Holy Spirit is in our life when it comes to renewal and experiencing joy, especially in unassailable joy. You know, in the Bible, there are a lot of descriptions used to describe the Holy Spirit, but the one I prefer, the one I like the best, because I think it sort of it encapsulates the whole work of the Spirit most succinctly, is that he is our helper or our advocate. He does a lot of things, but he helps and advocates for, uh, for the truth of God in all areas of our lives for the community of God in all areas of our lives and the mission of God. He's constantly reminding us of these things. The Bible uses a very particular word to describe the work of the Spirit. It's a description, a name you might even call him. It's the paraclete, and I've shared this before. It's a rich word that's actually a combination of two Greek words, uh, para and kaleo. You, you can see this in our English language. Uh, para from paramedic, the idea of like somebody who's coming alongside, and kaleo means to call out. This is where we get the word to call. And so the word para means to come alongside and help, the word kaleo means to call out and speak truth. And when you think about the role of the Holy Spirit, his role is literally a, a life transformation specialist. He is constantly calling out to us to help us experience a new birth in Jesus and empowers us to live a new life in Jesus. Those are the two things he's doing. Hey, think about this. Hey, think about that. Hey, hey, come over here. I want to help you with something. I want you to think about this truth in, in, my, in Jesus. I want you to think about this truth, my Father in heaven. That's why Jesus promised us after his death and resurrection and until his return that he'd give us his Holy Spirit to experience his presence in our lives, his presence in our lives. This is what Paul is saying in Thessalonians. Through and through, all three are working in you. Through and through, down to the cellular level. He wants us to find and remain in his joy. And the main way the Holy Spirit does that is by coming alongside your life, guiding your steps, speaking the truths of Jesus to your heart when you stray from them or when you forget them. He is our comforter, our encourager, and our helper. Resting in him and his work releases the power of change in your life. Much like God the Father and Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit is always working in you. You have to open the eyes of your heart to see and experience it. So as we move into response time, wrestle with these truths in your own life. Ask yourself if you really believe God has the power to make you somebody different than you are today. Ask yourself if you really want to be remade in the image of Jesus. Ask yourself if you are ultimately trusting in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for change. 
ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you this moment about joy? And what is it you will do and let him do about it as you move into this time of response and your week? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for thank you for helping us to understand the places you want our minds and our hearts to dwell on. Thank you, God, that in a a multitude of places with great redundancy, you tell us the same thing over and over again. You are our God, you are good, you are enough, and you want a meaningful relationship with us. You died to establish that. And I pray, Lord, that as we move into this time of contemplation and reflection, we would fixate the eyes of our hearts on that truth. May we ask this morning, since you are so clear about the way you want to relate to us, How clear are we on the way that we want to relate to you? I pray, Lord, as we move into this time of response, as we prepare to leave this room in just a couple of moments and get back into our our life rhythms, that we would let this time we have before you be a, a very deep and significant shaping time. Speak to us in clear and profound ways. Lay out clear steps for us and where you want us to go. Call us, God, to steps of action before you with each other and in our world and solidify this as a reality in our life as we leave this place today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray all of this. Amen. Now.